Just a quick note before I begin, this past week we had some recording difficulties, so the audio recording from the Bible class lesson didn't happen. Uh, But to keep continuity in our sermon audio files and to be able to serve anyone who was unable to be in class but would have liked to have been there, I'm going to just read through the manuscript notes. So at least the general content from the lesson will be available in audio edition as well. Of course, not everything that was said in class will be repeated here. That would be virtually impossible to do, um, especially in chasing down some of the side comments or questions or the rabbit trails that pop up along the way. Um, If I remember any of them, I will certainly include them, but I'll probably just stick pretty close to the manuscript here. As always, um, I would encourage you to purchase a copy of Tim Keller's book, Forgive. Uh, Even though we're covering a lot of the material from his book, we're not covering everything, and it would be a really good resource to keep thinking more about the topic of forgiveness. Now, in the previous lesson, we considered the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. In that parable, the king who becomes a servant models forgiveness, and the parable demonstrates a fourfold aspect of forgiveness. First, you must name the offense. Forgiveness starts with truth-telling, with exposure rather than a cover-up of excuses or half-truths. Without naming the offense, there is nothing to be forgiven. Two, take pity. To have pity on somebody who has wronged you means you deliberately do the internal work of understanding the perpetrator's situation, the perpetrator's vulnerability. That is not a natural thing to do. Your heart wants to concentrate only on how bad the wrongdoer is and how much he deserves to suffer. But the king, representing God, thinks of the perpetrator not just as a villain, but as a human being with his own fears and griefs. We could say you should take compassion or show empathy or think about the fact that you too are a sinner. So the person who has hurt you or sinned against you is not all that different from you. And just as you don't want to be thought of only in terms of your failures and the sins you've committed, neither should you think of others only as defined by those sins and failures. Number three, absorb the debt. Forgiveness means that when you want to make them suffer, instead you refuse to do it. And this refusal is hard. It is difficult and costly, but through it, you are absorbing the debt yourself. Some think that by remaining angry, they are giving the wrongdoers what they deserve. But in reality, you are enabling their actions to continue to hurt you. If instead, bit by bit by bit, you grant forgiveness in this way, eventually you'll begin to feel forgiveness. Number four, release the offending party. The relationship between the man and the king was restored. The man was no longer a debtor and a violator of the king's trust, but a citizen and a servant again. As we will see, forgiving and pursuing justice must go hand in hand. In fact, if you don't forgive a person, your justice-seeking will likely veer into the territory of revenge. The relationship between justice and forgiveness is complicated, and we will explore it later in the class. However, Here, the parable shows that anyone who truly forgives as the king does is open to reconciliation, to the restoration of the relationship. That, however, is dependent on the response of the one to whom forgiveness is extended. To forgive, then, is first to name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from the, from the liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. 
Finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you omit any one of these four actions, you are not engaging in real forgiveness. So that was what we covered last week. This week, we're going to consider the reality that forgiveness just seems absent in our society. And even more so, as we look back in human history, there's just really not a lot of forgiveness that we observe. Humans have failed to forgive for a long time. It is the absence of forgiveness, inside and outside the church, that occasioned Paul's instruction to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. In recent years, the absence of forgiveness has been more pronounced, presenting as anxiety and confusion regarding forgiveness, and even bridging into hostility against it. The hashtag MeToo movement provides an interesting window into society's uncomfortable relationship with forgiveness. In the wake of the movement, many survivors of sex abuse have been able to pursue justice, and many abusers have received justice that they deserved. The movement showed society that this behavior by men was far more pervasive than people had wanted to admit, leading to a host of good changes, from new workplace rules to increased support, formal and informal, for abuse victims. But the question of forgiveness has also emerged. So the emergence of justice is a really, really good thing. Um, but questions about forgiveness illustrate that the movement is not as um, biblically oriented as we might hope. Some victims of sexual abuse explained their previous silence as forgiveness of their abusers, yet that forgiveness impeded justice and potentially even fronted as a cover for cowardice. Others more directly posited that forgiveness could not facilitate justice and that forgiveness helped perpetuate a rape culture. Danielle Barron wrote in her The New York Times article, Should We Forgive the Men Who Assaulted Us? Insisting that she forgive plays into the sickness of patriarchal, misogynistic, male supremacist religions that blame women. Forgiveness heals neither the body or mind. Let the criminal ask his gods, if there be any, for forgiveness. Instead of talking about victims who must forgive, we should be tattooing the words rapist or sexual predator on the foreheads of the criminals. This would actually help make women and children safer. The complaints about forgiveness are understandable because the concepts of forgiveness that are currently popular are deeply flawed. There are three models that are popular and they need to be critiqued in order to show their weaknesses and to convince of the need for a better definition and practice of forgiveness. The three current models of forgiveness are non-conditional forgiveness, transactional forgiveness, and then bare opposition to forgiveness. None of these models captures the biblical picture of forgiveness and, for that reason, cannot produce the fruit of biblical forgiveness, nor can they reside in harmony with true justice. So let's look at each of these models in turn. First, the non-conditional forgiveness, cheap grace model. One popular model of forgiveness resonates with what Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined as cheap grace in his classic work, Discipleship. There, he spoke of grace that comes without cost and received without repentance. In many instances, forgiveness has been demanded of the offending party with no consideration for justice. Many confuse biblical teaching about forgiveness with a quasi-Christian practice that is concerned with individual forgiveness, but not social justice. The cheap grace model forgiveness is recognizable by the refrain, forgive and forget, simply because God has forgiven and forgotten our sins. It does not matter if the victimizer repents, the victim must always initiate reconciliation and simply respond as if nothing ever happened. 
according to this model. Tragically, within the church, this concept of forgiveness has been used against those who have been sinned against, especially those who have been sinned against by powerful Christian institutions and leaders. To make matters worse, when those victimized by their would-be shepherds, um, when they refuse to forgive, they are said to be vindictive. The call to forgive was often the way churches or Christian institutions guarded their public image and reputations rather than redressing wrongs. Though commonly confused with the Christian teaching about forgiveness, the cheap grace model forgiveness is not Christian at all, even if it is leveraged by Christians to evade responsibility and to avoid the costs of true repentance and the consequences of justice. Um, This model essentially preserves the power of the offender and it's used to deflect and evade any responsibility. Uh, I think often paired with this is a refusal to name the offense. So we've talked about naming the offense as a first step in forgiveness, to speak truly about it, not to excuse it away, not to cover it up. Well, the cheap grace model forgiveness demands forgiveness with zero repentance and without any real acknowledgement of the sin and the offense that happened. In the best editions of the cheap grace model forgiveness, those who have been wronged are rightly encouraged to forgive in order to escape the traps of bitterness and to avoid allowing the hurt to travel through time perpetually inflicting them. Although there is an aspect of truth to this notion, it does not sufficiently address the matrix of forgiveness and justice, repentance and restoration, nor does it account for the cost that permits forgiveness, especially when that forgiveness is not petitioned or deserved. I I have heard a lot of times people say, you just need to forgive, and by that they mean pretend as if it never happened. That's the cheap grace model forgiveness. And there's even been a situation in my life where um, there, there's been an instance where a wrong was done, and I named the offense. And, and the offending party said that I should just forgive and forget and move on without um, taking without them taking any responsibility or um, acknowledging that the offense actually happened. And then they went on to say that if I didn't forget and forgive, forgive and forget, just move on, pretend it didn't happen, then I would be jeopardizing my ministry as a pastor. And, and so sometimes this quasi-Christian model of forgiveness can be leveraged as a weapon against those who actually want to pursue reconciliation, but know that reconciliation involves naming the wrong that called the alienation um, into being to begin with. Uh, this is not a Christian model of forgiveness. The cheap grace model forgiveness, the non-conditional forgiveness is not biblical forgiveness, even though many Christians might assume that it is. The second model is transactional forgiveness, or the little grace model of forgiveness. Um, Another popular approach, more common in society than the cheap grace model, is the little grace model, transactional or earned forgiveness. In this model, forgiveness may be granted, but only as a means of exercising power over somebody, and it requires that the offender earn the forgiveness. So you noticed in the first model, um, the no forgive or, or the cheap forgiveness, cheap grace, uh, forgive and forget model, that actually protects the power of the offender. The transactional model forgiveness protects and gives power to the offended. And it really is just the opposite side of the power struggle here. Um, Jennifer Wright's advice to women illustrates this model. 
Women have rarely been in the position to be angry before, but we've rarely been in a position where our forgiveness was not automatically assumed before, and that's probably true. She goes on to say, though, giving forgiveness out judiciously to those who earn it, that too is a kind of power we deserve. Forgiveness in this model is disconnected from love as its source, especially self-giving love, and it's reassigned as an act of power. So notice that shift. Forgiveness in the biblical picture is an act of love and long-suffering and self-giving. In this model, it's an act of power instead. More than that, forgiveness in this model must be earned or merited. As Wright goes on to explain, forgiveness is not owed, it must be earned. Another author, Martha C. Nussbaum, emphasizes that abasement is the precondition for elevation. In the end, this approach falls short of the biblical picture of forgiveness. Those who detect the failures of this model of forgiveness rightly point out its weaknesses, but then they wrongly reject forgiveness altogether. For example, one critic writes, forgiveness is completely overrated and just serves to create power imbalances. I forgive you equals I am morally superior to you, however you look at it. But this is not really forgiveness. It is just another skillfully hidden way to pay people back and get control over them, a form of revenge masquerading as virtue. In the end, it is not really forgiveness. It is a gauntlet through which the perpetrator is forced to run until he or she is sufficiently wounded. This model falls short of the biblical picture. It resonates deeply with the theological heresies that require humankind to earn or merit God's forgiveness. It also puts the emphasis on the perpetrator meriting forgiveness, as the victim gives up anger only if the wrongdoer earns it through extensive acts of repentance and reparation. The third model of forgiveness is a bare opposition to forgiveness, or a no-grace model to forgiveness. The first two models of forgiveness are deeply dissatisfying. The first model, cheap grace, requires the victim to unconditionally forgive and forget, removing any room for justice. The second model, little grace, requires the offender to unconditionally repent and respond in a way satisfactory to the offended party. Because of the shortcoming of these other culturally dominant models of forgiveness, there's pressure not to forgive at all. According to this model, the notion that the victim, that is the offended party, offer forgiveness only perpetuates the offense and ultimately victimizes further. According to this model, when people are treated cruelly by others and you come along and tell them that they must forgive you, you have introduced a new hurt into an already hurting heart. And might not an effort to forgive someone go along with that person's attempt to control you? According to this view, forgiveness is inherently opposed to the pursuit of justice and accountability for perpetrators. Forgiveness is abandoned completely in favor of the pursuit of justice for the victim. For many, this view is directly opposed to popular understandings of the Bible's picture of forgiveness, especially if cheap graces forgive and forget is the default conception of the Bible's view of forgiveness. Yet the no-forgiveness, no-grace model can also appeal to biblical foundations. Given the historic Christian view that those who reject God will experience eternal conscious punishment, the no-forgiveness view may be compared with the biblical picture of eternal justice against sin. Still, the no-forgiveness view fails to account for the free offer of salvation and forgiveness that's in harmony with 
rather than diametrically opposed to justice and right condemnation for sin. You can see how the concerns for justice on the one hand and forgiveness on the other hand and reconciliation almost always seem opposed to each other. And in the next lesson, we'll consider how the biblical picture brings these two together in a deeply satisfying way, and that can only happen through justice and mercy coming together in the sacrificial death of Christ. All three of the popular models of forgiveness lack any vertical dimension. They all contrast with the costly grace model of forgiveness assumed in the Bible, which has both a horizontal and vertical dimension to it. This costly grace model of forgiveness will be explored in the later chapters of Keller's book, and, of course, for that reason, they'll be explored later in this class as well. But let's consider cultural influences on forgiveness. The popularity of the three models of forgiveness raises the question, why are these models popular? What cultural influences produce the various streams of thought that feed them? There are two modern cultural phenomena that are worth considering, the rise of a therapeutic culture and the novel shame and honor culture that dominate Western society. First, the therapeutic culture. Many thinkers have connected modern Western culture and its therapeutic bent to the unique cultural blend produced by the Enlightenment and the Romantic periods that combined human reason and deep emotion as fundamental markers of human identity and purpose. Both turned humanity inward and contributed to the rise of individualism. Recent books that may be of interest on this topic are Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, abridged as Strange New World, and Andrew Wilson's Remaking the World. Of course, any narrative attempting to explain contemporary culture and its historical influences has glaring weaknesses, such as partial explanations, undervaluing positive contributions, and so on. But these explanations are probably more helpful than misguided. Keller summarizes the cultural turn described in these books. Our culture has taken a strongly inward turn. While other cultures have stressed the importance of community and the need to forge a personal identity that negotiates and aligns with the common good, modernity has stressed looking inward to forge our own identity based on our desires, and then moving outward to demand that society honor our individual interests. Keller identifies the strong inward turn bolstered by the modern therapy designed to define individuals, or sorry, designed to defend individuals against any community or outward influence that foisted guilt-producing standards on them as an important factor in the fading of forgiveness. If guilt is done away with, so too is the need for repentance. If the individual is ultimate and community, in other words, relationships, are unnecessary, so too is forgiveness. In contemporary culture, forgiveness is either discouraged as imposing a moral burden on the person, the no-forgiveness model, or at best, offered as a way of helping yourself acquire more peaceful inner feelings, the non-conditional forgiveness model, of healing ourselves of our hate, if forgiveness is even present, the non-forgiveness model. But the absence of forgiveness also means weakened communities and relationships. Apart from repentance, an affirmation of guilt, and forgiveness, the imposition of moral duty, relationships remain fractured and the outward beauty of individuals fades into grotesque isolationism. 
The church as Christ community stands in contrast to contemporary attitudes, but only if the resources for healing relationships and strengthening community are preserved. The recognition of sin, guilt, and the need for forgiveness. Our sin inclines us to behavior that regularly weakens and breaks relationships. But through the Spirit, we are given the ability to realize, partially, never fully in this life, something of the beauty and joy of those future relationships through practices of discipline, through practices and disciplines of forgiveness and reconciliation now. A new shame and honor culture. Keller identifies an inverted shame and honor culture that takes on a religious flavor as another influencing factor in the fading of forgiveness. Here, he follows Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning's The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggression, Safe Spaces, and the Culture Wars, published in 2018. In the past, Western culture was an honor culture, but now a shame culture is emerging alongside. Keller explains, Modern culture teaches us that our primary concern is to demand respect and affirmation of our own identity. In this, it mirrors the desire for respect and honor that drove pagan culture centuries ago. People today are encouraged to respond with outrage to even the slightest offense, as was true in the older societies. However, the difference today is this. Modern therapy sees individuals as being oppressed and controlled by society's expectations, roles, and structures. Greater honor and moral virtue are assigned to people the more they have been victimized and subjugated by society and others in power. The further down the existing social ladder one is, the greater honor is possible. Ironically, then, we have developed a shame and honor culture of victimhood. The result of this inverted shame and honor culture is cancel culture, in which those at the top of the social ladder are canceled for real and imagined indiscretions, victimizations, and what Christians might call sin. Canceling, rather than forgiving, is the resource that preserves the new shame and honor culture, but it's not without cost. Cancel culture ends up valuing not strength, but fragility, and creates a society of constant good versus evil conflict over the smallest issues as people compete for status as victims or defenders of victims. It atrophies our ability to lovingly overlook slights, but most of all, it sweeps away the very concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is seen now as radically unjust and impractical, as short-circuiting the ability of victims to gain honor and virtue as others rise up to defend them. And so this culture is littered with enormous numbers of broken and now irreparable relationships. In the wake of cancel culture, society is fragmented, politics becomes a kind of religion, and the canceled are left as heretics without any means of acquiring redemption or forgiveness. Although many Christians consciously reject the new honor and shame culture, they have unconsciously adopted the resulting swap of forgiveness with canceling. In so doing, they have dispensed with both the desire for justice for the oppressed and the need for forgiveness. This halfway covenant with contemporary culture works itself into the church and Christian relationships, producing the same social fracturing and irreparable relationships common in secular America. Alan Jacobs is probably right when he concludes that the great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Although many Christians are happy to point out the woes of contemporary culture, they are blind to their own participation in it. But Christians must root our moral norms in the biblical God. That means grounding ourselves in not only a holy and just God, but also a merciful and forgiving one. Only a moral grounding in a holy and just, merciful and forgiving God can the respect 
respectful interaction with opponents and forgiveness of wrongdoers that is part of the church's history be preserved. Without forgiveness, there is no future. Keller summarizes the negative outcomes of contemporary models of forgiveness. The cheap grace model forgiveness focuses strictly on inner emotional healing for the victim, on getting past it and moving on, but then ends up letting the perpetrator off the hook. The little grace and no grace models basically seek revenge, which can lead to endless cycles of retaliation and vengeance back and forth between victim and the wrongdoer. When forgiveness is replaced with injustice and cycles of revenge, there is no future because the great resource for both justice and repaired relationships is forgiveness. Some might suggest that the call for forgiveness can come only from a position of power and can only be self-serving. But philosophers and social activists representing the most oppressed individuals of the 20th century, people like Hannah Arendt, Martin Luther King Jr., and Desmond Tutu, all insist on forgiveness as necessary for any real social future. These thinkers make a compelling case that to be a healthy society, one in which broken relationships can be regenerated, we must learn forgiveness. But forgiveness must not be limited to the offenses of racial segregation, slavery, and the Holocaust. There is an urgent need for learning how to do small forgivenesses every day. We are awash in slights, letdowns, and inadvertent hurts, let alone the many deliberate ways people wrong us in small ways every day. No one can live unless he or she learns when to forgive silently, when to bring the matter up, and how to forgive even if the other person is reluctant to admit his or her fault. We can't love without forgiveness, but we can't live without it either. Without forgiveness, we cannot love. Without forgiveness, we cannot truly live. And so resentment is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. Keller then points to communities of forgiveness that we can learn from. And he identifies the Amish community as one example that stands in contrast to many contemporary communities. Contemporary communities, marked by a centralization of the inner person of the individual, emphasize self-realization and self-assertion and have a profound sense of entitlement. They believe that their happiness, interests, and needs always come first. Amish communities, by contrast, are marked by core values that include self-renunciation, giving up your right to pay back the person for what they did to you, resulting in a profound ability to forgive. Keller identifies two factors that feed into the mark of forgiveness found in Amish communities. First, the Amish are an actual genuine community. In true community, relationships take precedence over individual self-interest. Genuine communities are rare because contemporary communities are generally people who find each other because of shared self-interest. Their self-interest just happen to align. But as soon as their self-interest becomes violated, the community dissipates. Not so with the Amish. Now, I'll interject briefly here that I was... Um, thinking about this and decided that I should read a history of the Amish to try to investigate this further and see what we could learn from the Amish. And, and I just say that um, Keller is mostly right here, but if you look at the practice of shunning and the deep lines of sectarianism over relatively minor differences among Amish in, and Mennonite communities, I'd, I'd say that um, this is mostly true 
But what the Amish lack in retaliation and revenge, they make up for in sectarianism and shunning. But I think we can still learn from them that it's the interests of the community and not the interests of the individual that take precedence. And probably at the end of the day, the foundation for some of the shunning is the fact that an individual has asserted their preference over that of the community, and therefore they are shunned by the community. In contrast, in contemporary quote-unquote communities, it's a shared mutual self-interest and shared affinity that binds that community together. And if someone takes on a self-interest that's out of line with the shared affinity, then that person essentially gets shunned as well. Um, so I think Keller is still onto something here. But then second, a second influencing factor is that the Amish are shaped by a confessional vision that informs their practices. In other words, their community is modeled on the picture of Jesus Christ bearing suffering rather than pursuing vengeance. Their life as a community reinforces this vision. As a result, they are pacifists, including in their personal relationships. At the heart of their faith and culture, the Amish Christians worship a man dying for his enemies. Through communal practices, this self-sacrificing figure is depicted, praised, sung, believed, and celebrated constantly. For Jesus to give his life and to forgive his tormentors was an act of enormous love and spiritual strength, and one of surpassing beauty. It is burned into the hearts and imaginations of every member of the community. If our Christian community is going to be marked by forgiveness as well, we may find that we have a lot to learn from the Amish when it comes to reverence for Jesus as self-giving and when it comes to the practices associated with their communal life. So in the class, I recommended that if someone has interest, they should visit an Amish community, they should learn from them, they should read books about the Amish, read an Amish history, and report back and share what they learned. And I took a little bit of my advice and and read a history of the Amish and would like to keep thinking about this. Um, But I think the emphasis on non-retaliation is something that we could certainly learn from, especially as American Christians who have imbibed the American myth of imperial power and um, even things like a strong insistence on gun rights and self-defense rather than a posture of non-retaliation. Keller moves on to talk about the history of forgiveness. The philosopher Anna Hannah Arendt argues that the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. We'll see that Christianity has played an important role in introducing Christ-like forgiveness to the wider world, even as Christianity's influence both internally and externally has faded. Keller begins by noting the absence of forgiveness. Many modern scholars agree that forgiveness was not valued in most ancient cultures. The Greeks, for example, valued other virtues such as wisdom, justice, courage, and self-control. When sympathy or kindness is shown to wrongdoers, it is conceived as pity rather than forgiveness. For the Greeks, one could show pity and be lenient in judgment, but the biblical concept of forgiveness that legally acquits or cancels a debt rather than simply lessening the penalty was absent. Leniency and judgment was thought virtuous when a person committed an offense, but they did so within a context of conditions of a sort that overstrain human nature and that no one can endure. A contemporary example might be something like showing leniency or understanding to someone who just yelled at you, but who got a flat tire, spilled their coffee, and has a caffeine headache. But showing leniency is not forgiving, but excusing. 
It is saying not, this is wrongdoing and I forgive it, but this couldn't have been avoided. To excuse is not to hold the doer responsible for action because of extenuating circumstances, even if the action itself was wrong. To excuse is to tie an action to a fault with one which, with which one can sympathize and whose expression is unintentional. This is making allowances rather than forgiveness. Just as our cultural and social reasons for the models of forgiveness or the absence thereof in contemporary society, so too for the ancient world. And Keller examines the reasons for the absence of forgiveness in classical antiquity, but they primarily center on the pursuit of moral perfection and the detachment of the soul or the inner person from offense, a kind of stoicism. In this way, ancient culture is inclined in the opposite direction of modern culture, but with the same devastating end, the absence of forgiveness. But then there's the coming of Christianity. If Hannah Arendt is right, true forgiveness made its way into society as a virtue through the teachings of Jesus and the church. But what exactly did Jesus teach that was so transformative? Fundamentally, Jesus' life and teaching demonstrated forgiveness and non-retaliation. This teaching was not intellectual pacifism or just a theoretical exercise, but a lived and costly reality. There was a high social cost to being a Christian rejection by relatives and neighbors, loss of income or job, harassment and violence, and in many cases there were political or judicial costs, the most extreme being execution. And Christians, following Christ's life and teaching, forgave. Their demonstrations of forgiveness were extremely compelling even to those who had inflicted the hardship. Kenneth Scott Latouré observes, It is important, too, to remind ourselves again that the church did not seek retaliation against its persecutors. In the Christian writings of the period, there is little or nothing of bitterness or of a desire for revenge against those who are hounding the faithful. So far as we are are aware, no imprecatory prayers were offered against them. Early Christians taught that Christians must not retaliate, but forgive, to remain patient, and to await the day of God's future vengeance. Jesus came the first time as suffering servant, and we are to follow him in this. But in his second coming, he will be the judge to right all wrongs, and we are to wait for that with a hope that gives us endurance. And while waiting, Christians are forgive those who incur God's wrath. This message is noteworthy for how it calls Christians to non-retaliation, patience, and love for enemies, and yet does not do so by diminishing the injustice that's been done to them. In the ancient world and in the contemporary world, This kind of patience, love, and forgiveness is considered weakness. However, within the Christian worldview, forgiveness is not a sign of inner weakness, but of the greatest moral virtue and strength. Many non-Christian, agnostic, and even atheist philosophers and historians are gradually recognizing the positive influences of Christianity, even conceding that Christianity has been good for the world. See, for example, Tom Holland's book, Dominion. One of the primary goods that Christianity has to offer is the resource of true forgiveness. But it didn't offer forgiveness alone. It shaped the entire conceptual world wherever it took root. It provided a framework of thought in which forgiveness could find a home along with the recognition of divine and human worth, of rights, of duty, of guilt. However, there are frameworks of thought within which forgiveness can find no home. It can occur where It cannot occur where these are not recognized. Many believe that the proper frameworks for forgiveness in Western society are eroding, and that may be the case. 
But it is also important to consider whether local church communities are experiencing similar erosion, preframed with religious language. If local churches lose the right framework, they also lose forgiveness. And here, the relationality of doctrine is clearly displayed. Despite its fading, Keller argues that forgiveness will persist. Although the theological and cultural resources for it are diminishing in society, forgiveness will not disappear. There remains a powerful human intuition about its importance and power, even in a secular culture that eliminates the vertical relationship with God. Keller defends this assertion by making an appeal to Ecclesiastes 3, 10 through 11, identifying it as strange and wonderful. wonderful. Many, Keller included, take God's placement of eternity in the human heart as a positive statement, but many other scholars regard it as negative, indicating an inability to rest and be satisfied. I have not studied the text myself and do not take a position yet. Still, aside from Keller's argument here, we can affirm the persistence of forgiveness for two reasons. One, subjective experiential, and the other, objective. First, internal longing for relationships and sensation of guilt over wrongdoing necessitate forgiveness. Although quasi-communities and short-term relationships can be maintained through mere social contracts and the excusal of wrongdoing, long-term relationships and covenantal communities require forgiveness and the acknowledgement of guilt. The longing for real, deep, and lasting relationships is fuel for a Christian theology of forgiveness. What's more, despite the diminishing framework of thought that affirms a difference between good and evil, guilt simply does not go away, as Yuval Noah Harari notes in Homo Deus. Human behaviors and experiences, including the broad spectrum from distraction to depression, indicate that guilt remains, even as the religious condemnation for acts previously identified as sin is removed. The modern therapeutic culture has done little to deal with guilt. Where there's depression and distraction, there is likely guilt humming in the background, hoping for forgiveness from God and from others. Second, the objective reason for the persistence of forgiveness is the historical, objective reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that secures God's forgiveness for all who respond to the gospel of God with the obedience of faith. Historical events and their meaning can be ignored to the detriment of those who forget them. But in this case, history is destined to repeat itself. That is, God's forgiveness persists through time even when it is forgotten or rejected. God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ did something to alter objective reality, and that reality is not going away. Forgiveness is safe regardless of what we do with it. But to receive it, to participate in it, to offer it to others, and to benefit from its fruit requires that we engage in all three dimensions. The vertical dimension, in which we receive forgiveness from God, the internal dimension in which we grant forgiveness to others, and the horizontal dimension in which we offer reconciliation to others are all necessary. Forgiveness is one of Christianity's greatest resources, and it is freely available even as it comes at a deep cost, the cost of which is demonstrated by the Christ who died to purchase it for the world.